Thank you, Steve, for sharing the word. And also, it's been good already for us uh, to have gathered and uh, to have been in worship and to sing truth about our God. I do hope that that's a part of how you come each week uh, to worship God, that uh, just even uh, singing truth about God is, um, is part of how you prepare your heart to even receive uh, the word of God. Before I get started in, uh, into the message today, I did want to mention something that Pastor Tim mentioned. Uh, he talked about the reconnect, and I uh, just wanted to take this time to encourage uh, our couples. Um, this is designed really uh, for you as a church. We want to equip marriages, and uh, as a pastor who spends a lot of time uh, counseling couples, um, I know that there's a need for that, and so I just want to encourage you as couples take the time. We, do, we only do this three times a year, and it's just a way for us to, uh, to build into uh, our marriages. So if you can uh, take part in that, it's just a way for you, again, to invest into uh, your marriage. And it's something we as a church want to, want to encourage you to do. So we're going to continue on um, in this series uh, in the book of Acts uh, that we started. Uh, We we actually started this back in uh, 2020 and then took a break and came back to it. And we've been in it now a few weeks. And uh, today we're going to be looking at this idea of being uh, saved from religion as we begin looking at the story of Cornelius. And as I say that word, uh, religion, I think it needs to be, to be clarified. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the pure and undefiled religion that's mentioned in, in James 1. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about how people today uh, understand religion and specifically good works. Uh, we, we have a different idea of, of that word when we attach it to a life of just living well and good and having good works. Christians use the term Pharisee a lot, and, and I'm sure it's a term that maybe you don't use, you've heard. And if I were to ask you, you know, what is meant by, by that word Pharisee, you know, how would you answer that or how would you think about it? Some would say that, uh, that the word Pharisee brings to mind the word hypocrite. Um, others would say uh, legalist. Others would, would say uh, religious. And, and as we think about the Pharisees in uh, the New Testament, they were religious. They, they followed rules. Uh, they, uh, they had a legalism. And that's really what legalism is. It's just... It's just making uh, your whole relationship with God about rule following, and, it, and there's so much more to it than that. But, but even the Pharisees, they did what they did for a reason. And what was that reason? When you, when you look at it, and even when Jesus addressed it, what was that reason? Well, one of the things they were looking to do is they wanted to look righteous. They wanted to look righteous, but did they actually want to be righteous. And there's a difference. There's a big difference between the two. And as we begin today, I want to just ask you that question. What about you? Just think about the way you live, the things that you do, the things that are important to you, the things that you portray to others. Do you spend a lot of your time trying to look righteous? Or is your Christian life really filled with practices that do not have as their aim 
for you to look righteous, but have as their aim for you to be made righteous. Today, as we introduced, as we, as we look to this introduction of Cornelius, we're going to see someone who Luke really portrays as someone who desired to, to be righteous. But for that to happen, he had to learn something. He had to learn that religion and good works would never be enough. And so the Lord sovereignly brought him to the one thing in the world that makes the unrighteous righteous, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what this story really is unveiling. And we're going to just get into a little bit of it today, and then we'll continue on in it over the next couple of weeks. So let's just pray. And would you pray with me? Let's ask God to really speak to us this morning. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity that we have today to gather in your name and to worship on, um, on the Lord's day. And already, Lord, with our morning and even going into this morning with uh, the time change and then weather and there's so many things that distract us from what it is that you've called us to do as we gather here. And that is to really behold our God as we have sung. And so I pray for that. I pray that even in this time right now that there would, that everyone would just kind of take a deep breath and, and say, okay, what is it that God has for me? And then Lord God, we, we, we trust that you will speak, that you will work, give us ears to hear a heart to understand. Lord God, we thank you for your truth. And we thank you that you do speak. So please, Lord God, do that even as we are receptive to it right now. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So I want to get right into uh, this text for today. We're in Acts chapter 10, and we see right away as Luke is continuing to write this story He brings us to an introduction to Cornelius. And we see there in verse 1 at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And so Luke starts chapter 10 by taking us to Caesarea. Now we remember chapter 9 ended with Peter staying in Joppa. And we talked about that, the, the significance of that. But Luke, he starts this chapter by taking all of us to Caesarea, which is on the coast about 30 miles north of Joppa, where, where again Peter is. Now, Caesarea is, is the capital of the Roman province of, of, of Judea. It was also the capital of the Roman occupation of Israel. And so it's kind of where the Romans set up their base when they uh, came in and occupied Palestine at this time. And, and it was a military town, uh, a very large Roman uh, garrison of uh, soldiers were, were stationed there. And, and, and Cornelius, he is introduced to us, or Luke introduces him to us as a centurion, uh, that a Roman soldier of rank, an officer. And, and, he, and, and just to give you a little bit of an idea of how this broke down, a, a Roman legion consisted of about 6,000 men. They were divided into cohorts of 600 
each. And then a centurion commanded 100 of these men. And so each legion, uh, each Roman legion would have about 60 centurions, which again made up the cohort. And these centurions were, were really considered the core backbone of the Roman army because they had, they had leadership, there were a lot of them, and they, they had uh, oversight over 100 soldiers each. And, and Luke tells us specifically that Cornelius is a centurion in the Italian cohort, which was, a, which was just a specific name of one of the cohorts. Now, as a centurion, he would have been paid about five times more than just a rank and file Roman soldier. And so, you know, he had... He, he, he was not a, a man that would be considered poor. He had, he had some wealth. He had some power. He had some rank. Now, an important background to all of this is something that all of Luke's audience would have known. So this is one of the things that we have to do as, as good Bible readers and, 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 and just interpreters is understand, okay, as Luke is writing this, what would, his, what would his audience have already known that I don't know because I don't live in that time period that I need to understand? Well, one of those is the fact that the Jews hated the Romans. And one of the reasons was because of their military occupation of Palestine. And, 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 and of the area. And, and you think about it, why would that be the case for a Jewish person? Well, they believed that God was their king. You know, God was their ruler, not Rome. So how could Rome come in to, to the land that God had given to them and they, and they take, you know, this military ownership? So they hated them for that. And they hated the Roman army that enforced the occupation. That's how, they, that's how they saw it lived out is, is the, the, the Roman soldiers would enforce this occupation. And so Cornelius would not really have been a welcomed guest to Jews during this time because of, again, just the background of what's going on. Now, from here, let's move to the religious devotion of Cornelius. Uh, we see in verse 2, that Luke describes him as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So one of the things that you see here right away is that Luke intentionally describes the religious devotion of Cornelius, right? Like he doesn't have to tell you this. He is telling us this because he wants to describe something very clear to us about Cornelius, and that is his religious devotion. And, and how does Luke do that? Well, he tells us he was devoted. He was, a, he was devoted. He was a man who feared God. He gave generously, and he prayed continually. We're going to look at each of those. He's described as a devout man, meaning he had sincerity and devotion, and, and specifically what Luke is talking about here is to God, to the God of Israel. What he knew of him, what he understood of him, of this God at this time. And also, he was a devout man in his position as an officer of Rome. He wasn't ashamed of that. He's also listed as a man who feared God. 
a God-fearer. That, that term, God-fearer, was a term that was applied to Gentiles by Jews. So they would refer to a Gentile uh, that, that feared God, that displayed faith in the God of Israel. And they would say, he's a God-fearer, they're a God-fearer. And so that was, again, a, a term that was applied specifically to Gentiles for, that, that believed in the God of Israel. And usually these God-fearing Gentiles were not circumcised. They had not taken that extra step to really identify with a Jewish heritage, nor would they necessarily follow the strict dietary restrictions uh, that the Jews followed. But what they did do, these Gentiles, is they acknowledged as a Gentile that they believed in the God of Israel. And so this is what is being described of Cornelius. Luke tells us that all of his household feared God. And, and usually when the, when the Bible in the New Testament refers to that, it's, it, it refers to his family who's living in his house, but also his servants. And, and so what this means is that Cornelius brought this fear of, the, of, of, of the, uh, Israel's God to his house. Notice also that Luke says he gave alms generously to people. And that means he was giving to the poor. He was giving to the needy. And specifically here, that would mean that that would go to the Jewish poor and the Jewish needy. And, and so one of the things we also need to understand uh, about the, the Greco-Roman society, again, that's different from ours, is that charity and giving w- was not regarded as a virtue like it is today. Like it's more virtuous today to be known as a generous person. It doesn't mean that there wasn't some virtue attached to it, but in, in the Greco-Roman society, people gave as a way to gain honor and prestige for themselves. And, and actually, it was okay to do that. It was, it, was more, it was more acceptable from a societal standpoint to make it known that you were doing something for the very purpose of receiving prestige. Also, another common uh, trait of those who gave at this time was they would give to those who were capable of giving something in return. And, and so, so this was kind of the societal understanding, but yet here's Cornelius and Luke is describing him as somebody who seems to be giving in the right way. He's not looking necessarily to be noticed or recognized and he, and he is giving to those who cannot repay him. And so again, Luke is, is, is not telling us this as a negative. All of these things are positives. Luke also tells us that he prayed continually to God. That's not a bad description, right? Wouldn't you like that to be uh, described of you? This is how they're describing Cornelius. And this indicates that he probably went to the Jewish synagogue to pray and to worship even as a Gentile. It's clear that Cornelius was sincerely seeking God. Yet, had he gone to Jerusalem, and had he he gone to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, he would not have been allowed past the Gentile court. So even even as uh, all of these descriptions, there were still limitations for him because he was, again, 
a Gentile. And this is, again, according to Jewish tradition, law, and how they worshiped God. And yet, he does seem to be worshiping God, the God of Israel. But he's still a Gentile. He's still an outsider. And on top of all of that, he's a Roman soldier. Now, what I want to do right now is, is I, want, I want to make something very clear here because it's something we need to understand as we continue to go forward in this story. There's a, I'm calling this like a significant spiritual reality that needs to be mentioned here, and it's this. At this point, Cornelius is not yet saved. He's not yet a regenerated, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You might say, well, where are you getting that from, Pastor? Well, first off, it's an important point to make, and I'm getting it from Acts 11, which we're not there yet, but Acts 11 helps us understand what's going on here. I'm going to put up here on the screen so you could see, and he told us, this is Peter speaking, he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. So this is Peter explaining to the church in Jerusalem this story. And he's explaining what happened. And he's making it clear that Cornelius was saved after Peter meets and talks with him. Which essentially means he was saved after Peter shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. It's important. And so what we see here is a distinction. Cornelius is quite religious. He's a really nice guy. Seems like a great guy. He gives to the poor. He prays to God continually. He seems genuine and sincere in his worship of God. But he's not yet saved. He's not born again. He's not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And the reason for it is because he still needs the gospel. And that's what this whole story is is getting to. So let's go to, let's go to, let's see what happens next here in the narrative. Part, Part three, God gives Cornelius a purposeful vision. He gives him a vision with purpose. Verse three, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So now do something, send men to Joppa, bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. So in this chapter, there are two visions. This is the first, but both have purpose. They have purpose and they have divine purpose. God is the author of the purpose and the vision. About 3 p.m., that's the ninth hour of the day, 3 p.m., and that's an important time for, uh, in Jewish worship. 
It's an important time of sacrifice. This is where you go at 3 p.m. and you, you offer sacrifice and prayer. It's part of what, what they would do. And this tells us that Cornelius is most likely participating in this part of Jewish worship. So he's praying and he's probably praying when he receives this vision. And that's how a typical Jewish worshiper would really understand here what Luke wrote about the ninth hour of the day for a Jewish person reading that. They immediately think, what are we doing at the ninth hour of the day? Well, we're praying and we're going to the temple or we're going to the synagogue. We're doing what we need to do. We're offering our prayers. And then Cornelius sees something. He sees an angel and the angel speaks to Cornelius and he says his name. He says Cornelius to him and Cornelius responds with terror. This is a seasoned Roman officer and he's terrified of what he sees. And so, and I've said this to you before, do not imagine a fluttery angel playing a harp It's not what he's seeing. Those are the things we've come up with. Imagine a very powerful, heavenly being that strikes fear into all that see him. It's almost categorically the response of a human when they see an angel is fear. Not, oh, how cute. No, it's fear. It's it's speechless fear. And he knows that this angel outranks him because he responds with, what is it, Lord? He knows. And the angel responds, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So what what does the angel mean by that? So we need, to do, we need to do some digging to understand what's happening here. Why, why, why did he say that? What does he mean? Well, prayers and sacrifices were part of Jewish worship. Again, alms would refer to the kind deeds uh, that were done to others out of mercy. So usually when you're talking about alms, it's, it's something kind and merciful that you would do for someone else. A lot of times that could be giving, but it could be other acts of mercy for others. And so, so that's, what, that's what it would mean. Now, what I want to do in explaining this is I want to start with what it doesn't mean, and then I'll break down more what it does mean. So here's what it does not mean, and I think this is, hopefully will make sense to you. It does not mean that God is meeting Cornelius halfway. This is, you know, when, when the angel says, oh, 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 Cornelius, your, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before you. Uh, so you know what? God's just going to meet you halfway. You know, that's a term that we like uh, to use, but that's not what's happening here. It's not, God is not saying, hey, Cornelius, since you're making an effort, I'll make an effort too. He's not doing that. He's also, it doesn't mean that, that God is helping those who help themselves. It doesn't mean that. God is, not, God is not telling Cornelius, you know, you, you, since you're trying, you know, you're really, you're really giving it a shot here. I'm going to give you some spiritual credit for that. And I only help those who really help themselves. That's, that's by the way, that's not biblical. That's, that's something we've come up with. God only helps those who help themselves is not from the Bible. 
It's, it's from culture. Uh, it, it, it's just kind of oral tradition. What, what, what the Bible teaches is that we can't help ourselves and only God can help us. I mean, that's the gospel and that's, that's what Cornelius is learning. So God is helping those who help themselves. That's not what this means. And it also doesn't mean that your good works have finally paid off. Cornelius, God has finally taken notice of what you've done and what you've been doing and it's finally paid off for you. You kept at it and it's finally here. And, you know, and Cornelius can go, finally, you know, someone's paying attention to what I've been doing all this time. The angel means none of that when he said, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. All of this that I have here are, are examples of works-based salvation. These are people trying to earn their way to God. It's not, that's not what the gospel is all about. So what does it mean then? Let's, let's move to that. What does it mean? Well, keep in mind that that phrase uh, that, that we're talking about here and the phrase that I'm referring to is your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That phrase is, uh, it stems back to a, an Old Testament reference about sacrifices to God. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a passage in Leviticus 2 that talks about uh, sacrifices being a pleasing aroma ascending to God. And, and so if you can kind of imagine that here, that that what, what, what the angel is saying is that, is that something pleasing has, has ascended before God. And, and so what it means is that the sacrifice itself is not the basis of accepting the offering. The sacrifice itself is not the basis of accepting the offering. And, and also, the heart of the worshiper is what determines the acceptability of the offering. And, and, and so, when you look in the Psalms, it's, uh, the scripture says, a true sacrifice is a broken spirit and, and a contrite heart God will not despise. Right? We're, we're familiar with that passage. And what that means is you can, try to, you can sacrifice stuff, and we're, we're in Lent, so this is a perfect time to talk about this because there are a lot of people sacrificing stuff for God and, and, and it's almost as if God I'm going to sacrifice this and, and in sacrificing it you know God, God's going to take notice of it and, and somehow what I'm sacrificing then becomes how God evaluates my worship and that's not at all what's happening here. What's happening is God is evaluating the worship of Cornelius on what's going on in his heart. And that's, that's scriptural. That's, that's biblical. That's why a true sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. What God does despise, so broken contrite heart before God, he will not despise, but what he does despise are when, hum when humans go before him, elevating things they've done to him and say, hey God, look, as if that is supposed to be something God is to be impressed with. That's not how we get right with God. That's how we stay wrong with God. 
And so this is what's happening. So uh, another way to say it is this. I'll put it up here on the screen for you to see. The angel is telling Cornelius that God has seen his heart and it is in the right place. He is genuinely seeking to do right before God, but he needs more. He needs the gospel. He needs Jesus. And, and the Jewish synagogue and all the things he's participating in, many of those people have no desire for Jesus. Jesus isn't part of their worship. Acknowledging Christ, the Messiah, is not part of their worship. They're just going the way of, 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 of Judaism and, and saying, no, we're just going to worship Jehovah God, but leaving Jesus out of it. And so something's happening here in Cornelius. What's happening is God is providing a way for him to come to Christ. He's making a way for Cornelius to know who Jesus is. And so the angel tells Cornelius to send men to Joppa, where we know from last chapter, that's where Peter is, to bring Peter to Caesarea. And then he specifically tells him he's staying with Simon the Tanner, which we talked about last week. Now, two specific parts to this instruction that I want you to take notice of in, in the instruction that the angel gives to Cornelius. First, Cornelius is not instructed to go to Joppa. Notice that? It's very specific what, what, what the angel says. Send two men. Send, send, send and go. Not, not you go, but, but send for him. And, and two, Peter must leave Joppa and he must come to Caesarea. Now, you might, you know, that, that could be a, potentially a minor detail, but they're actually quite significant because, again, the Lord is being very specific here. This is clear instruction. This vision, take notice, this vision is not at all confusing. It's not filled with things happening that no one can explain. It, it, it's, not like, it's not like that. It's very clear instruction from God to two of his servants. One is Peter and the other is Cornelius who's about to become one of his, of God's servants. And the proof of this vision being from God, how do you know this vision is from God? Well, the proof of this vision being from God is the fact that two separate people in two separate places get the exact same message from the same God. Now, how often does that happen today when people say they have received a vision from God? I mean, we have a very specific instruction that's going to happen to Cornelius and then also is going to happen to Peter, which we're going to look at next week. So this is not a bizarre, confusing vision. And that alone, again, again shows that I think it's from God. It's the same with the vision. And this is, this is scriptural. If we look at the vision that Zechariah had, it was very clear, very instructive. The vision to Joseph that, that, that happened to him for, for him to leave and go to Egypt, very clear, very instructive. The vision before Saul and what he was supposed to do, very clear. The vision to Cornelius, very clear. The same with Peter, what he was supposed to do. So this vision is definitively from God, but it's given to someone who's not yet a believer. And again, it's just more proof that God is the one who is sovereign. 
He is the one who is king, and Cornelius has little say in whether he is going to receive this or not, right? Like, he's not saying, hey, today, I really want to get a vision from God. It's not what happened. God decided, I'm going to speak to you today in a very clear way, and you're going to hear from me. And here's the thing. God is still speaking today. Now, you don't have to look for him to speak to you specifically in this way, but he is clearly speaking, but you need to be hearing and listening and paying attention. And it could be that he's speaking to you right now through this word that you're hearing. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying in this more supernatural vision type way, but just God's truth is touching your heart and, and that's meaning something for you. So God is the one doing it. He didn't receive this. Cornelius did not receive this vision because he was better, because he was more holy, because he was more righteous, or because he had a knack uh, for visions. In fact, he's not, again, even yet a believer. He received it because God The God of the universe has a purpose for his church and his gospel, and Cornelius has a role to play. So we see here, right, who is orchestrating what, right? God is the one, and and Cornelius has a role to play. And we're going to see again as we continue through this that so does Peter. But let's go on in the story. We see next that Cornelius obeys and sends the men to Joppa. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, somebody he can trust from among those who attended him and having relayed everything to them, which you could imagine that conversation, right? Having related everything to them. what What did you just say happened? He sent them to Joppa. He's a military guy, so he does what he's told. Right? The angel came. What is it, Lord? Boom. The angel leaves. Cornelius does exactly what he was told to do. No prayer. No wondering. No meeting with a bunch of other people. Just obedience. Sometimes we complicate things with our spirituality. And sometimes it's just obey. Just do what it is that I've told you to do. And we complicate it. Now, here's a couple questions I want you to think about. Does Cornelius know why he's calling for Peter? Not really. He doesn't really know what's going on. God didn't fill him in on all the details. Does he know what Peter's going to do when he gets to Caesarea? Not really. He doesn't even know really what he's doing. He's just obeying. And he's obeying in faith. This is what's so important about about this whole Christian life that we need to understand. It is not based on what you see in front of you. You you need to trust God. And, and And this is an example of that. He doesn't know why he's calling for Peter. He doesn't know what's gonna happen, but he obeys. 
obedience. And again, we're going to pick up with the text next week. What I'd like to do now is just kind of take from what we've, this text, and, and, and see what we can learn and apply to our own lives from this text today. We, we and, I, and I hope, you know, I've talked about this before, but uh, we exposit text, which is what we're doing, expositing text, and we do that to gain meaning, right? To understand the meaning of the text. And then we seek to draw application from the meaning of the text. Did you, did you catch that? So we're gaining meaning from the text. We're gaining application from the meaning. But the meaning doesn't change. What we're not saying is, well, what does this mean to Mark? What we're saying is, okay, here's what it means based on what the scripture is saying. How then can we draw application from its meaning? And this is something we should all be doing in our Bible studies, in our Bible reading. If you're leading a Bible study, that you're faithful to the word of God. It's something always to remember as a teacher. Something I think about a lot. You are going to stand before God one day and give an account for how you presented his truth. That is humbling to think about it. So that's what we seek to do. So drawing, again, this, this meaning and, and, and response from the text and and, and again, doing that in a faithful way, we see that God is the one sovereignly arranging salvation here, all for his purposes to be fulfilled. This is coming right out of the text. We have another story similar to Saul, where God is sovereignly arranging the salvation of someone, this time a Roman soldier in Caesarea. I mean, the story ended last chapter in Joppa. All of a sudden, we're in Caesarea, and this, we are hearing about this Roman centurion who's worshiping God religiously and God speaks to him because he's going to draw him to himself. Why is God to do that? God has a plan. And it reminds all of us that as we pray for those who are not saved, as we pray for our loved ones, we pray for God to save them according to his purpose and will. We appeal actually to the purpose and will of our God. And when his children appeal to the purpose and will of God, one of the things that we're demonstrating as children of God is that we trust God's purpose and will. And so we can demonstrate that even in how we pray. Second, we see, we see this, good character, a moral lifestyle and spiritual interest does not equate to saving faith. Good character, a moral lifestyle, and spiritual interest does not equate to saving faith. Cornelius almost looked like someone who didn't need to be saved. But he did need to be saved. He was a good moral person, but he was not saved. He was not born again. He was not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. Cornelius is a biblical example of a religious person still needing to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His Roman soldier friends probably said, Cornelius, you've become pretty religious. What's going on? But until he heard the gospel from Peter, he was not yet born again. He may have looked righteous, but he had not yet been made righteous. He gave to the poor. He prayed to God continually. He attended synagogue, but he was not yet saved. And it reminds us of something 
I'm going to put this on the screen for you to see. Salvation and forgiveness of sin comes from a faith-filled, believing response to the good news message of Jesus Christ and submission of your life to him as Lord and King of your life. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, it comes from this faith-filled, believing response to the good news message of Jesus and what it is that Christ has done. His life, his death, his resurrection. And also, another thing I want you to see, I'll put this up also on the screen for you to see, the gospel saves religious people from trying to earn salvation through good works. You can't make your way to God, reconcile yourself to God, get yourself to heaven through religion, just through following religious activities and doing good things for other people. It, it, you'll, it's never enough. The only way that, that you can be right with God is for God to make you righteous, not for you to try to show God how righteous you are. There's a big difference between the two. And it makes all the difference in terms of the gospel. Third, if you're truly hungering and thirsting for God, this passage tells us he will reveal himself to you. If you're hungering and thirsting for God, Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. In other words, if your heart is truly See, there's a, this is where your heart comes in. If the heart says, I just, all I really care about is how I look to other people. I don't really care what's going on here. I just want to make sure that everyone thinks a certain way. That's not a way to find God. But if your heart is truly God, I want to be made righteous. Not, I don't want to look it. I just want, I want to be made righteous. And only you can do it. He will reveal himself to you. If you're attending fellowship and you consider yourself, maybe you say to yourself, you know, I, I'm not even sure um, I could say that I'm a born-again Christian pastor. But if you, tr- if you truly hunger and thirst for what is righteous and true, you will be filled. The Lord will reveal himself to you. Ask him to do that. I encourage you, if that's where you are, and I know that with, with, with the amount of people that we have and, 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 and the different backgrounds that are represented even in this room, that there are people still searching. Ask God to reveal himself to you. I started today by asking you about Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are different from Cornelius because they only wanted to look righteous. They had no interest in being made righteous. The ones who did, who wanted to be made righteous, they actually sought out Jesus. The ones who didn't sought to kill him. Cornelius was seeking to be made righteous and the Lord revealed himself to Cornelius in a very powerful way, which we're gonna again see as we continue to unfold this. But you should know today, I want you to know something today. If that's you, if you're seeking, if you truly want the Lord, God, the creator of the universe, you wanna be made right with him. Not right, 
not right with nature. This is another thing that's out there today. Not, I'm not talking about you being made right with nature, you being made right with yourself. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about you being made right with the universe around you. I'm talking about you being made right with your creator God, the one who breathed life into you, which he has provided a way for you to be made right with him. And that is his son, Jesus Christ. And ask him to reveal himself to you. And he will. And when he does, believe the gospel. This is, this is that faith-filled response. Believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Because he's the only one who can save. He's the only one who makes people righteous. And that's what he does. He saves us. We trust him. He saves us. He is the one who makes us righteous. None of us are being made right with God because of our own righteousness. It's all because of the righteousness of Christ. It's not by our good works. It's by his. And that's what we see coming out here in this story. It's this incredible story of a man who was seeking after God and doing the best he could according to what he knew. And so as we continue on, we're going to see that God very sovereignly introduces him to the person of Jesus Christ. He's going to use Peter to do it. And that, and using Peter is going to create a tremendous change in Peter as well. So I hope and pray that you can respond to this by understanding what it is that makes us right with God. And if you have people around you in your life that are religious and they and they're seeking religion as a means of being made right with God this is a good passage to to even have you read over and pray about and ask God to give you the words so that you can share what you need to with those who need to know that Jesus is the only way let's pray together Lord God we thank you for your word we thank you for your truth and we thank you Lord God that we do not have to try to earn our way to you because every single one of us, if, if it was left to us to do that, we would all fail. Every one of us. There's only one who has lived a perfect sinless life and it's his righteousness that we need to be made right with our God. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us your righteousness and making us your own. Help us to walk and live each day with that understanding, thankful hearts for the gospel. And help us also as we're around people, so many, so many trying, searching, seeking their own way to you. And Lord God, I pray that you would give each one of us the wisdom, the discernment to know what to say, how to say it. For those around us who are, who are seeking just alternative methods to being made right with God. Help us, Lord, uh, to handle those things in a biblical God-honoring way. We thank you again for your word and your truth. In Jesus' holy name, amen.